Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. this episode we initially set out to talk about the topic of remediation but having spoken a bit about what that word means for people i think there's a very interesting topic developing from this specifically about how the deanery can support us through our progression in training um, and so we've got two very special guests with us for this episode mr quadra and mr ghosh uh, would you like to introduce yourselves Thanks, uh, Jamie. I'm uh, Nadim Akwaja, and I'm a plastic surgeon in Manchester. Until recently, was head of school of surgery for the Northwest, and uh, recently started as deputy postgraduate dean. I'm John Ghosh. I'm a vascular surgeon based in Manchester. Uh, until recently, I was training program director for vascular surgery, and I'm now uh, incoming as uh, associate head of school of surgery in Northwest. I think as trainees, it's it's really hard to admit when you're to the left of the training curve. And you require extra support, extra time, or a little bit more focused training to get to where you need to be. And I think sometimes it's it's super intimidating to look up and see your trainers execute their job so flawlessly. And then you hear them sort of say, oh, you're behind where you need to be. And you just think, how on earth? Like, How am I ever going to get there? I, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, I'm just going to come out and say it. I was subject to a remediation process. And it, and it was John that sort of took me where I needed to be. And um, it doesn't help that, John, you cast a really, really imposing shadow. So for those of you that don't know him, I'll give you a bit of an outline. He is an incredibly skilled surgeon. He did an operation so ridiculously complex in his first week as a consultant, it ended up in the press. And it's so good, we're just going to have to talk about it. So essentially, he was on call, and um, it was a 30-year-old pregnant woman who was in one of the in the back of a taxi going home. Uh, a drunk driver ploughed into the taxi at high speed. So then you've got this woman that's blue-lighted to the hospital where John's on call in his first couple of days as a consultant. And she's 39 weeks pregnant. She's got multiple rib fractures. She's got a penetrating liver injury and a traumatic aortic rupture. So JG being JG does some ridiculous ER shit. Like it sounds like ridiculous fiction, but it's not as truthful. And he basically does a trauma laparotomy, delivers the baby, packs the abdomen, clamps the IVC, repairs the liver, tries to put percutaneous thoracic stents in to repair the, the like knackered aorta. Can't get them in because this woman's got hyperplastic arteries, like they're too small to allow the stents to fit in. And then in the middle of the moment, he's like, oh, shit, 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 what am I going to do? He does what's called a medial visceral rotation. I think it's called a cattle brush maneuver and just mobilizes all the abdominal organs, right? Out of the way, gets to the aorta, does an aortic arteriotomy, cut down 
and then modifying angioplasty and then railroads these thoracic stents in through the open aorta up to the thoracic aorta and then just deploys it, seals it, stops the bleeding. Woman wakes up five days later, baby's fine. She leaves hospital somewhere like two weeks later. Imagine, imagine this guy is your TPD. How do you even follow that? You know what I mean? He says, you're not up to standard. And you're like, what the hell, man? Like, what kind of standard have you set? How can you follow that? It's been interesting comment against John's blushes is, because um, obviously John and I go back away, is um, it's a combination of there's definitely talent there, but it's a very cliche thing to say. There's the training. True. But when you find training a struggle, it's really hard to believe that you'll end up at the same level one day. And um, going through the process of remediation with John, it was really daunting because, you know, stories of his abilities, like that case, follow him around a lot. But, if you know, in fairness to him, I thought that your approach to getting me back on on the right path, it was really good. You didn't even say anything that critical. In fact, it was when you complimented something else that I'd done in my ARCP that the penny dropped and I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> that's, uh, that's JG speak for book your ideas up, son. Because, I mean, I'm sure you as a TPD don't ever want to see anyone fall behind. But your your strategy of putting me with a specific trainer and using these sorts of words really, really helped. First of all, <laughs> I hope I'm not that imposing figure. I think coming back to when you're having this kind of interaction, there's um, a threat-reward dynamic. What you don't want to do is create a separation between you as a TPD or a trainer and the trainee. You want to minimise the feeling of threat and you want to maximise the feeling of reward. And there's lots of models around this. So I think the, the key things are status that you need to understand and be, have pride uh, about you being a specialty trainer. You've, you, you're have you a red shard because you've earned it. So not taking that away from you. Having a feeling of autonomy in your training. So it's a partnership. As we've talked about, I think you have to be very clear about the rules. So there's certainty. So the rules don't get changed every time you meet and uh, everyone is on the same page about what you're trying to achieve. Uh, having a sense that the, the the system is fair and also being part of the community as well. So I think when you're talking about training, you, you're trying to, my, my approach is, is, is trying to look at each of those and try to make it a partnership trying to reinforce that you have a status and you know you are a, a senior trainee and have clarity about where you need to be and how we're going to get there i suppose that's my my, my approach with you uh, it comes back to you know what we want you to be as good as you can be we want to enable you to be as good as you can be but what is the minimum to progress and i think you know that the interaction that we had you were fine, actually. You you were meeting your milestones, but uh, I think the concern was if we look at 12 months and 24 months when you think about out of programme or an exam, do you have that buffer of skills, experience, knowledge that you're going to have a, a comfortable time as you, as you can do? And so I think the conversation we had is that you're doing fine, but this is the level that you need to look at in 12 months' time and how are we going to get there? And you, I think you picked up on that very well. If you don't mind me making this a very personal, uh, no, 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 that was the approach. I just thought, you know, it was. It, you said it to me, and it was like a brilliant masterstroke. And I always thought that for a long time, I was kind of keeping my head up 
above water. Like I was just sort of treading water and I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And I think you really helped me ride the wave of training and just go with it. And I just think for me, that's what's really good about remediation done right and, and people supporting you. I mean, I had some other resources at the same time. You know, I had an informal mentoring agreement with someone else and that really helped. But for me, after that placement, after in my training, I got the confidence and I got the mo- I got my mojo basically, which I, I felt like I'd lacked for years. So part of us doing the motivation for doing this episode, I think, is that I just really wanted to talk about it in more detail because I feel that I am the product of remediation done correctly, and it's been instrumental for my sort of further development. I believe that I can do this now. I could go the distance. So I think that's why it's so important and such a personal topic for me. So thank you. (laughs) So I guess we should probably start by maybe dispelling some of the myths surrounding the the, the title that we originally planned remediation what does that word mean to you remediation well to me i suppose um it can mean different things to different people a formal definition of that is that it's an intervention designed to remedy underperformance and return a doctor to safe practice and I think therein lies one of the problems because there is stigma attached to it, uh, particularly when you talk about underperformance and, and safety. And I think the reality is that a lot of the support structure that we offer at uh, supervised level, at deanery level, is really um, not about underperformance or safety concerns. It's really about um, a formative approach to training and setting a trajectory to allow trainees to meet their learning agreements and I think the pre-agreed uh, milestones in the training. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the language is really, really important. There are some trainees who will need remediation. as These are a very, very small number who fall into that category. For the vast, vast majority of trainees, uh, this is about supporting them throughout their training and the pathway that they we will all have slightly different paths, not every trainee will follow our identical course so it's how as trainers we're mindful given the hectic workplace and resources and life changes that go on for trainee trainers as well as trainees uh how do we manage that and get everyone to where they want to be to, to be safe doctors but also more than safe but you know to excel at what they want to do i think it's a really important topic because um I mean, I did a little bit of snooping on the internet and literature searching, and it's estimated that anywhere between 5 to 20% of surgical trainees will be defined as underperforming. And I suppose if you look at surgical training like a bell-shaped curve, where there's going to be most of the people are in the middle, there'll be some people who are a little bit under and some people who excel. And, you know, 20% sounds pretty reasonable. Like Anyone could be on that side of the curve. But I think the problem is, is that when we look at other stressful, high-performance industries, whenever they they need additional support, it's, it's usually given free from stigma. Like if you're you're in the forces and you pick up an injury and you you're training to be a paratrooper, they'll put you in a in a special squad, which is just you get enhanced physio, enhanced support, extra nutrition, da 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 da. And when you're ready to rejoin, you just rejoin. It's not like you're shown the door. 
There's no shame attached with needing that additional support. Only like Premier League footballers, you pick up an injury, it's fine. Just go on the bench, do a bit of physio, you know, put the magic spray on four times a day, and then we'll uh, we'll get you back to where you need to be. But I feel that the language and the kind of attitude towards that in surgical training is 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 perhaps not as accepting of that. Yeah, thanks. I said I think you've opened quite a few, um, quite a few interesting avenues there. I don't think it's just surgery. I think it's um, uh, health education in general, but actually wider than that as well. Uh, I think the sports coaching example is a really good one, especially as you move into elite sports. That yeah, you don't fail. You just get better by coaching. We're not in that environment, sadly. It'd be nice to move towards it. I think a lot of workplaces unfortunately cross over between formative development appraisal versus performance management because also you do need your workers your professionals to reach a minimum standard so yeah i think i think the sports example is really good at where we want to get to i was just thinking while you were talking so at school i was actually in a remedial class for a subject and that was not supportive as in it worked out well yeah uh, but it, it was meant as in yeah you guys are the ones who can't achieve stuff so you know even that so that was not healthcare that was just school and language and stuff so that, i think it may be an education thing as well uh, a lot of people assume that it's a, it's a linear pattern that we progress steadily at the same rate but i think the reality and i think a lot of our personal experience shows this is that we progress in fits and starts there'll be times where we're we're flying and then there'll be times where we feel that we're stagnating and we are trainees core training specialty training we're not the end product so what we as a i suppose a training organization try to do is define the minimum if you like expectation should be and support trainees trajectory to meet those trainings over that period of time i can't remember which politician was it years ago um who said everybody should be above average which obviously statistically is just impossible i think one way to visualize it differently is naturally there will be a bell-shaped curve so 50% will be below average. However, that's not important. What's important is that absolutely as many people as possible in the bell-shaped curve are above a good standard. Then the spread is fine after that. But we want the good standard, not minimum standard, good standard of good, safe healthcare. And then how the spread is across there will vary, and it will vary throughout your career. Where I am now in my career is so different from when I was a trainee in terms of you know, how I've progressed. So that's um, it varies. Sometimes people falling what we call below average um, or maybe behind the rate, quite a natural process. It's almost inevitable. Yet you you also, as especially Mr. Ghosh has said, that there's a lot of stigma that's still attached to people who fall behind. And it's something I think, especially as surgical trainees, we don't talk about often. Do you think that that has changed? Do you think it's in, in any ways improved over recent years? Or do you think that the stigma is still the same as when you were trainees? I think it's certainly improved, but it's still there. And um, a lot of that is internal as well. So I think we naturally fall within a certain phenotype. We've chosen surgery. Um, so we think we have a tendency to compare ourselves against other people uh, with the assumption that everyone else is better, everyone else finds it easier, which is not the case. And I think the culture is we can talk about that there is much more of a support network out there, but we need to encourage people to utilise it. How do you as supervisors recognise, like, are there any behaviours, any actions, any kind of common commonalities that sort of manifest themselves that means, you know, this person's on the radar now, like, we think they're approaching difficulty? 
I think in my experience, the majority of people that have self-awareness that they're not meeting the goals that they expect or they're having a difficult time either in the workplace or because of circumstances outside the workplace may seek uh, help either from their supervisors or directors to the TPD. Or there's a group of people who, you know, complete their placements, they think they're doing fine, but when you look at their portfolios objectively, you'll see signs that their performance may not match their self-assessments and that can be that can be evidenced through things like supervised reports logbook numbers um competency levels whatever what about behaviors you know like sometimes you see people who are a bit apathetic or tardiness is an issue absenteeism or we talk about bypass syndrome where sometimes people actually skirt around that person altogether in order to get the answer that they want I think I'd be nice that it's idealistic to think that like they just sort of fit a certain phenotype and then that's it. Problem customer. There is a range where I guess as as you get more experience, you certainly don't become perfect. In fact, you start to realise how much you miss or don't know. You become more aware of what you don't know as a trainer. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a range of people. I mean, we try and categorise them just for our own recognition thing. So I think the ones that John's already mentioned are really uh, important. Obviously, for surgeons, you've got your technical skills etc you've got your knowledge so but i think yeah your professional ones that you're talking about they can be much more subtle and much more difficult for two reasons one because the the trainers recognize it but don't know how to raise it because that becomes quite delicate and how to challenge it it's much easier if it's you know you can't suture or you haven't passed an exam that's very objective this is very subjective and also if the trainers haven't recognized it because how, you know, we don't have the firm structure anymore, depending on what, how your speciality is, what term level you're at. And it can go under the radar. Um, uh, and then what John absolutely um, mentioned, which I'll emphasize again, is about does the trainee have awareness? Do they have insight? Uh, yeah. So I think um, picking things up can be difficult, but also knowing how to escalate or who, where to get help from is difficult as well sometimes. And that's where we hopefully try and come in. I would think that insight and what we talked about earlier the stigma attached to requiring support with your training um sort of go hand in hand a bit there's a tendency for trainees to deny that they're they go they fit into that category of someone who needs support and they they sort of persuade themselves or certainly i've sort of fallen for that where you you kind of deny it at first and then when you realize that the evidence is there that you need to improve and you come to terms with it but i think for me i feel like if we sort of improve um, the understanding and and reduce some of the stigma surrounding the need for support that might improve trainees' insight. Know that because the majority of the stuff that we do is assessed and registered on ISCP, like you know, our portfolio. Do you think there are some limitations with using that as the main evidence base for assessing performance? Do you know what I mean? It, it seems like it's a little bit two dimensional. So you could either get some trainees who are doing well, but their portfolio doesn't reflect that, or trainees who curate their ISCP to make it look pretty spotless and in reality there are there are issues that they're sort of omitted 
So it's a, it's a sign of the times that question a little bit. So you're absolutely right. I'm hoping we're moving away from that with things like the MCR, because that's a more holistic global approach. But if you wind things back a number of years to pre-ARCPs to the Ritas, that had a bit of structure to it, but it was more loose. And then there was a time, which is before my time, where there's actually nothing to assess you on apart from how does everyone feel? There was nothing objective at all. In fact, at one stage, there wasn't even a curriculum. Things have evolved and things are continuing to evolve. I mean, the MSF is also very helpful as well, especially for those trainees who are not aware of where they sit or how they're performing, how people perceive them. I think what the RCP and the current structure is good at is the, the hard metrics of surgical training, which is logbooks, competency levels, portfolio. What is much harder, and I think you, you alluded to this earlier, which is the behavioural signs, or should I say symptoms of difficulties. So, um, you know, disappearance, work rate, temper, bypass syndrome. So your colleagues will maybe seek advice from other colleagues, progression through exams. And I think not so long ago, it was very, very difficult to pick that up. And that was really dependent on having a close relationship with clinical and education supervisors and recognition by the team around you. Um, I think what we're moving more towards is more data points, which look at those hard metrics, but also those um, behavioural metrics. And the MCR is a large step forward towards uh, to that. And MSF adds to that as well. But also, if you take um, ARCPs as a continuum, so rather than as a snapshot of that six months, but if you look at a trend, um, you can often see those trends forming over time and that's where a panel can see um these symptoms appearing i think it is it feeds into a report which is built up from lots of pieces isn't it the msf mcr um clinical supervisors educated supervisors logbooks and i think my, my experience of arcps is that if there is an issue. Um, you can see that filter through all the different domains. Uh, it's uncommon that you'll have, um, let's say, an MCR, which has negative elements to it, but everything else is is wonderful. Um, uh, obviously, there, there's always going to be exceptions, but you, you'll, you'll often find that um, um, a comment in MCR will often find its way to an MSF and perhaps a, a supervisor report. And that's how you build a picture of where you're going to take this training next and uh, how you're going to uh, assist them. How how do you sort of distinguish between a trainee's point of view and then, say, a trainer's? Like, I imagine if you're higher up and, and you, your job as TPD or dean is to kind of um, arbitrate then you've got trainers saying one thing, this person does this, 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 this. Trainees saying, well, that's not true because of this, because of this, because of this. How do, you, how do you evaluate that or weigh that up? I think one important principle is that um, there's clarity, that the trainee knows what is expected and what evolution they're going to go through over six months, shall we say, and the trainer um, knows what they have to provide. And you always return to that. So I think the learning objective, given that benchmark of, of what you need to um, achieve, is, is really important. Uh, global objectives, again, really important um, because it gives you a, a benchmark that you know 
um, what you're aiming for, and the curriculum as well. So there uh, will be checkpoints, um, which are slightly different depending on what specialty you do. But again, these are tools to benchmark yourself and to see your trajectory at the various points of your career. And the flip side is if there is a, a feeling that you're meeting those uh, milestones, it gives you something to, to, to aim for. It gives you something that's defined, that's standardised across all trainees in the country, and you can formulate a, a smart objective towards that. So I think um, being clear about what, you're trying, what, what you need to achieve, the timeframes you need to achieve it, and being open. So one of the other good things about the MCR and the MSF is that you see it, the training will see it before an ARCP and it's an opportunity to reflect as, you know, as with all feedback, you accept it or you don't, um, but um, it gives you the opportunity to reflect on it and, you know, does this person have a point? And uh, that's something that you can then talk about when you do come to your panel. Uh, I don't know, Dean, if you have a different perspective on that. No, no, it's all done. Probably a couple of um, um, just additional things from experience, but I fully agree with um, setting the expectations. And a lot of those expectations are set for us around us with the curriculum and with the requirements. But, um, uh, you know, the number of ES meetings I've seen where there's some fantastic um, objectives set and really, really nice. And then the key thing then is to pick those up in the interim. I think an example of a less good uh, learning agreement interim is do more of the same, do more operating, you know, actually thinking about the technical skills, the knowledge, the the other areas, that sort of thing. And for later on at the other end of the spectrum about the RCP side of things, that exactly, again, what John's saying, that the trainees see these things beforehand, <laughs> right, this is a positive move over the years. And the conversation we often have with trainers is who want to ring you up the night before an ARCP and tell you something so you can action it is if it's not written down and you haven't spoken to the trainee, we need to think most of the time you can't use that because it's not fair for the trainee. They need to have it fed back to them. Mm. It's interesting. Do you think that sometimes people or trainees can set too high expectations at the beginning of their placements yeah. and, and that risks them sort of appearing like they're not meeting what they set out to do, but maybe those targets or learning agreements weren't realistic in the first place. Oh, actually, what's come to mind as you're asking that really important question, Jamie, is actually something that is a challenge for trainers is actually those who are easily achieving the minimum requirements is that then they stop pushing themselves um yeah so they overachieve the high achievers the ones at the other end of your bell curve and i've seen that problem happen quite a lot where you're just ticking along but you're not reaching your potential sort of thing so i think every trainee has to do what they yeah is the best of their ability do you think that's reflective of perhaps a bigger culture in surgery like in such a pressured environment it attracts a certain mindset and a phenotype that maybe we really struggle with the idea of of not being as adept at it as we first as as we like because like none of none of surgery is natural like no one no one sort of cuts the way out of the womb and ligates their own umbilical cord they're all skills that you pick up you learn you rehearse and naturally people will pick that up faster than others but we ourselves put this un- unwieldy expectation on it, either at the expected standard or well in excess of it. I think this is where the, the system as it is currently structured is helpful, because when you live in your little bubble, 
it's very hard to see outside it and you it's very hard to benchmark yourself against other people and where you should be so the the curriculum uh, provides that standardization so we know the goal we know the final product and we can time manage training to reach that final product so as a day one consultant yes there will be a normal uh, distribution in terms of abilities for certain operations and certain attributes but there is a minimum standard and that that is what the, the process is is built around um I, th- I think an important consideration is that the process that you talked about of, of self-improvement doesn't stop as soon as you get cct or doesn't stop as soon as you become a consultant and um i've been a consultant for 10 years and i'm very different to the consultant i was in 2013 so you know that that process ne- never really stops but uh, the, the curriculum uh, mentorship from your clinical supervisor your es from the arcp process is really i think one of the benefits of this it, it, it is a reality check and just helps set your um your compass <laughs> So if we think about people that need additional support, how we sort of phrase it, remediation, enhanced supervision, et cetera, what, what can we as trainees expect from the deanery? I expect is probably the wrong word. Uh, what, what provisions can be offered to us? Yeah, there are a couple of different scenarios where issues may come about. So the... Um... ARCPs is obviously the checkpoints to help guide you to that day one consultant's guide by the curriculum. And you'll have people that may not meet the expectations of learning agreements and um, where, where they should be at that time in training. But there's also a group of people um, that will raise problems in between ALCPs. And in my experience, that's actually the majority of people that need, should I say, deanery support. And it may be worth talking about that group first the symptoms should we say so the 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 the, the um behaviors that you described before such as temper control bypass syndrome late to work not uh, not succeeding exams I, I think there should be a reframing that those are symptoms of perhaps some underlying um issues which um we as a, a training organization um can assist with and those can be internal um, health problems, bereavements, family problems, life circumstances uh, that, that just happen. It can be environmental problems. It can be uh, interpersonal within that, that that unit. It could be a training issue. So what the deanery can give you for people that raise problems in between ALCPs is, I think, a discussion, and that can be with a clinical supervisor, an education supervisor, maybe escalated to TPD to really understand what is going on and and what support structure in the deanery is. And Nadine will be able to expand this is uh, obviously there's adaptation to how we deliver training, whether it's a different trainer, whether it's a different style of training, whether it's a different unit, whether there's a, an issue that needs to be escalated to a GP or an occupational health. There's 
coaching. So Northwest has a professional coaching service and a mentorship service that you obviously you, you, you're involved with. And I think those facilities exist in, in most regions. And reframing your learning objectives. So maybe you know, is, are your learning objectives too ambitious? Does it need to be rethought? So I think uh, at an early stage, those are the, the immediate steps which can be um, um, put in place before we get to an ALCP. Yeah, I'd agree um, uh, with all that, John. I think, um, and just for our listeners, because again, we've got a wide um, uh, audience uh, who will be listening across uh, um, different parts of the country and possibly beyond, is um, many regions will have something called the PSW, a professional support and wellbeing service. And for those colleagues who are aware of PSWs, um, uh, this is another option available to you because sometimes you don't want to go to your clinical supervisor, educational supervisor, TPD route. Although that they're actually really important people to support you, but sometimes it's difficult to access them because you're worried about how that will look for you. So um, a PSW uh, approach can be really, really helpful. Um, uh, things that don't mention like exam support, other family illness, your own illness, et cetera, et cetera. I think one key message is asking for help early. If you recognize there's a problem yourself, uh, asking for help early. Uh, when I was a trainee, my one of my TPDs, uh, as you know, it was my TPD, who then I became a consultant colleague with later on, uh, uh, told me that problems don't tend to go away by ignoring them. And again, that's obviously a really obvious thing to say. Uh, so yeah, bear in mind the PSW uh, side of things. So yeah, I think I think we're starting to see a bit of a theme about different things here. About you know, is it your technical performance? Is it because you're just you know where you are? You're you know different pathway you know your speed of development is different like you said i said about how quickly you're developing a operative skill everyone's obsessed with operative skills you'll find for uh, the trainees you'll find that most consultants are actually more think about professionalism and how you behave as a consultant you know much less than half of your time is actually operating although that's really key there's so many other skills uh, and again, I'm going to put a little plug in here for things like the ePortfolio. One of the reasons we're going on and on about getting your ARCP portfolio, ICP portfolio done is because of the consultant keeping up with your paperwork appraisal and um, patient admin. You know, your patients won't get operated on if you don't fill in the paperwork, you know, this sort of thing. So, you know, it, it's, it's nice to talk about it because I think there's some research out there suggesting that trainees who have been given a period of enhanced supervision at the end result, uh, as consultants are indistinguishable from trainees who have not had to go through that process. So I think it's really nice that we can talk about it as as a as an entity, as a process, but also extol its virtues. Because um, I think sometimes, like you say, imposter syndrome, or, or if, you, if you aren't quite right, quite there, you can sometimes feel like, well, if I'm requiring this extra support, am I ever going to make it? And I suppose the answer I'd want to say to other people is, yes, yes, you can. Yeah, and return return to the point that people don't usually develop in a in a linear fashion. It's usually in fits and starts, and our job is to try to maintain that progress and maintain that trajectory. And I think moving away from the day to day support to the now now the ARCP setting, I think it's quite important to understand what these outcomes mean. It's not pass fail; it's these are de- developmental outcomes. So we, you know, the curriculum uh, has defined the standards that you need to reach over a certain period of time. And it doesn't matter how you get there. 
as long as you get there. And so these various outcomes are really tools to allow you to do that. It's to give you the understanding that a change needs to be made, um, or if you need it, that extra time to get to get to that uh, destination. It's it's not a, a punitive measure. It shouldn't be seen as a punitive measure. These are tools to help give you that information. Uh, to make some form of change, whatever that change may be, or to give that uh, extra time to make that change. And during that time, there'll be um, smart objectives, which, uh, as you know, this listenership will know, these are relevant um, goals which are achievable, that can be done in that period of time, that can be measured so you've got the evidence that you've met that standard. And once you've got there, then you carry on as you are. So these should not be seen as a fail or a punitive Measure and unfortunately, we as competitive beings, it's very hard to um, have that conceptual leap. Oh, um, I would, I would reassure the um, trainees um, who are listening as well. Um, obviously, there are some significant points where if you do get an outcome two or three, it can affect you significantly at that time. For example, not being able to sit an exam. Uh, you know, there is a pay progression point at the end of ST five. If you get an outcome three, you lose out on a significant pay progression. So these are important factors. So the reassurance I would give the small number of trainees that fall into that small is we take these decisions very, very carefully, very, very carefully. They are not taken lightly. They're a holistic approach to everything. It's not based on one piece of information, you know, and there's checks and balances to this. The other thing I was going to ask, because it's it something that um, sort of worries me is about these outcomes is how much do they follow you through your career? Sometimes it feels like a bit of a black mark on your training portfolio because you can if you you can see it um in the iscp uh history is it something that you know trainers look at and and see as a significant um later on in your career if you've got a lower outcome it's interesting already jamie you've um you've you've used that very common word uh, again because of all the number of arcps i've done i pick up that word very quickly a lower outcome what what is a lower well outcome? uh well, what you mean? i know exactly what you meant yeah, you know <laughs> you don't have to explain it yeah yeah so I think um, it depends what stage you're looking at. So when you become a consultant, of course, your ISCP disappears, doesn't it? Uh, so, um, and, um, you know, John may have more experience with this, um, in the recent past, but I think <clears throat> fellowships are slightly, you know, that middle phase, but a consultant job, no one's really looking at your ISCP. You've got a CCT. <laughs> so it's taken that now you're at a certain level. Obviously, then you're very bespoke to what job you're applying for, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, um, uh, yeah, as I say, you will find that a number of your consultants will have had very, very variable courses and you are uh, through their training and you won't have the first clue. Some people would have won a lot of prizes, got every job the first time, uh, you know, passed everything and got various things. Others would have had the complete opposite and you won't be able to tell the difference. Uh, so I think that that's often the way I, I think about it. I don't know, John, if you've got different experiences on that. Yeah, I mean, um, sigil training is a very long process, and at the time, uh, it feels like a, a huge, um, significant event, but um, that fades. And I think what's really important is how the trainee approaches it, but also how it's explained and how it's sold and how it's managed by the, the panel and the trainers. Um, these are all measures to try to get you and to help you get to um a certain standard and once you're back to that certain standard it really doesn't matter then you carry on as you were and i think if you talk to most consultants most 
will will tell you about one time where they had a stumble and then they carry on and it's a, it's a memory. So mm-hmm. it's not something that will stay with you in the long term, but at the time we all understand that it feels like a, a, a huge, huge event. Nadeem, I just wanted to ask you, I think you've touched on it, but you know, you're a consultant plastic surgeon, you're, you work in a university teaching hospital where you rub shoulders with the vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, you're deputy dean, you are like tef- bulletproof, basically. And that can feel like a tough act to follow. I sit here thinking, bloody hell, am I ever going to get there? Probably not. Have you ever been subject to remediation and did you uh, think that you would get from where you were then to where you are now as john says surgical training is long uh you know mine was a bit longer because of various other factors uh one being the outcome three so you know there's a there's a range of things in terms of remediation yeah i've actually got far too many examples uh to to give all of them but to give one example so i had significant problems passing from the part one of the frcs to get towards the end of training a new tpd started and he basically, I can almost remember the conversation, the word for word, he basically got a hold of me and said, we need to change something. You can't expect a better outcome by doing the same thing every time. You know, made a number of changes. You know, that's the remediation, the support side of things. It was a case of someone recognizing there's a problem, expecting me to do the work, but supporting it. And of course, it had a, a, a an outcome because I wouldn't be a consultant because I want to got a CCT. So that was a huge intervention at that time. And you learn from that. And that's probably a reason why myself and other colleagues who are around that time have got involved in these sort of uh, these sort of activities so i think that's the uh, safest one to tell you about without uh, without my consultant job being removed from me <laughs> you having been through that and like you've said multiple occasions but we're going to talk about one and i think i think i was just going to say one other thing um, as like, obviously we're focusing on the trainees rightly so but i don't want to forget the trainers and i think sometimes trainers don't realize what a good job they're doing yeah yeah no no true actually and like I'm very grateful to you, John. Like I would be like the trainer you paired me with said, I'd have been in the bin by now. And and your sort of foresight and your wisdom really, really, really got me to where I needed to be. And fine, yeah, I had to put in the work, but it was you so, that got me there. You know, I think, um, I think thankfully because we're on a, um, a an audio medium, you won't see uh, John's um, blushes. Hearing it from your from your mouths, right? As a real layer of authenticity about it, it's not just a platitude like "oh, well, if you struggle, you can make it, you can make it too." To hear that someone right at the very top of the ladder, and you may not feel like that, but from f- quite a few rungs down below, you 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 know, you definitely look like you're up there. Um, just comes across as really invigorating. I don't know; it's really quite refreshing to hear that the the person who thought they never could can, in fact, do it. I've, I failed my undergraduate surgery. If it makes you feel better, so so everyone's got a story. It's just um, you know, when you get to that position, it's like it's like your GCSEs. Who cares how many you got? Once you passed it, it really doesn't matter. So I'm afraid, John, my stories start at GCSEs. Mind <laughs> 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 you, it's all so, over. It, 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 so unfortunately, uh, I'm, 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 I'm
very motivating my son. I tell him about GCSE. So when he's a when he's a bit cheeky, he'll say, "Well, you didn't do very well at GCSE, so you know you did all right." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you're not going to go through the same stuff that I had. You know, I had to pull it through the bag." So Sadie keeps telling me how lucky I am, but there's a, you make your luck a bit as well, don't you? I think it's to the point of it doesn't matter how you get there. You with the right attitude and the right support around you, you'll probably get there. Mm-hmm.